So if you have God's word, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6 to 9. And we have come to an absolute critical stage of this epistle. Perhaps it can be argued that this is the heart of this epistle. Chapter 8, in speaking about the new covenant. I want to read from verse 1 and read to verse 9 for context's sake. And may God plant His eternal word into our souls. Now the main point in what has been said is this, that we have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are some who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second for finding fault with them. He says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant and I did not care for them, says the Lord. Will you bow with me to word prayer? Lord God of heaven and earth, we believe in the Holy Spirit, and we believe in the enlightening power of the Spirit, and we ask that you would pour out your Spirit, your Spirit of grace upon the means of grace of your Word. We pray that by the power of your Spirit that Christ may be so formed in us and live in us, that all of our thoughts may be brought into submission to him. In his name we pray, amen. Well, in the biblical drama of God's redemptive story, no theme is more glorious than God's gracious intention to enjoy communion with humans who bear his image and whose lives have been broken through sin. The biblical story of creation and redemption can be thought of like a music ensemble with four distinct movements. It begins with God's great work of creation, moves quickly to the fall into sin, and then choruses into God's gracious purpose of redemption and crescendos into the anticipation of the day when God's creative and redemptive purposes will finally reach their consummation in the new heavens and the new earth. And what lies underneath the grand symphony of God's redemptive story is the invisible hand of God to initiate and orchestrate the communion between God and his elect through the work of Jesus Christ. Indeed, at every note in this grand musical ensemble, the scriptures present the triune God as the sovereign Lord who condescends himself to enjoy fellowship with us. Now, despite the loss of the original fellowship with God that the human race once enjoyed in Adam before the fall into sin, God intends to restore the fullness of unbreakable fellowship with his people through the work of the last Adam, Jesus Christ. And from the first note to the last note, 
the graciousness of God to seek fellowship with His people is masterfully performed by God Himself who accomplishes it all. And when we get to Revelation in the final movement of God's symphony of salvation, we see a beautiful picture of the fullness of human life when God's aim is to enjoy fellowship with His people reaches its goal. Paradise lost will become paradise gained. To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever will no longer be a longing and hopeful blessed, but it will be a blessed reality. All the brokenness and trouble that has been wrought by human sin and disobedience will be reversed. Life will no longer be a struggle, but life will be an unending delight. And through the triumph of the Lamb of God, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ will enjoy and blessed communion with God and offer to Him unending praise. Now, though I have deliberately avoided using the word, the framework for this grand narrative of God's story of redemption is the term covenant. Covenant is the theme that links the different books of the Bible to make them one united story. It is the framework with which God sets the scene for the coming of Christ and the bringing of his kingdom. So important is this theme of covenant that respected theologian J.I. Packer goes as far as to say that the gospel of God is not properly understood till it is viewed within a covenantal frame. Just what did Packer mean by this? The covenants are not part of the way I learned the gospel, perhaps you might be saying, dividing into four major points, God, man, Christ, and response. Packer is not saying that one cannot understand the simplicity of the gospel without the covenant, but one will not properly and adequately grasp the depths of the gospel without this covenantal framework. And this was the burden of the author of Hebrews to his readers. The overall purpose of Hebrews was to warn the Jewish Christians against falling back into Judaism. And he's just told them that the Old Testament priesthood was a copy, a shadow of the true priesthood of Jesus, that Jesus is the real thing. But the author goes on to say that Jesus is better not only because he's a better priest who serves in the true tabernacle, but because he is the mediator of a better covenant. You see, as we'll explain in a moment, these Jewish Christians were stuck in the old covenantal way of thinking. The appeal of the old covenant was strong in their minds and they equated performance and observing the external rights of the old covenant as salvation itself. And they failed to see that Christ was the mediator of a better covenant enacted on better promises. The author cites the better promises, quoting Jeremiah 31. An author was demonstrating that the new covenant mediated by the Lord Jesus Christ is of a vastly superior covenant than the old covenant. One can argue that the entire epistle to the Hebrews is an exposition of the better covenant of which Christ is mediator. Now, well-respected pastor and theologian James Haldeen he lived in 1768 to 1851, and he entered the ministry as a Scottish Presbyterian. And upon further study, he and his brother Robert became Baptist. And he was not shy about his Baptist beliefs. And a large part about his Baptist beliefs came from Hebrews 8. And on Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6, he wrote in his commentary that the difference between the New Covenant and the Sinai Covenant 
is the grand object of the epistle. And so to help us understand this vital difference of the covenants, we'll be taking two weeks to unpack the rest of chapter 8. We'll focus on the necessity of the new covenant this evening. And the next time we study Hebrews, we'll observe the blessings of the new covenant. And my hope is that through this study of the new covenant, we would not neglect so great a salvation. Now, to guide our thoughts this evening, we're going to work through three essential questions to understand the necessity of the new covenant. First of all, what is a covenant? Someone has said that asking for a definition of a covenant is something like asking for a definition of a mother. A mother may be defined as the person who brought you into the world. That definition may be correct formally, but who would be satisfied with such a definition? A mother is so much more than someone who has brought you into the world. So it is with this word covenant. It is multifaceted word with so many dimensions to the term. Let's begin with a simple definition. That a covenant is a solemn agreement. It is dependent on the conditions on which the two parties mutually agree. And if either party break the conditions, the covenant becomes void. And so theologians from various eras and denominations have defined it as such. For example, the Reformed scholastic theologian Francis Turretin defined it this way. It denotes properly a pact and agreement. Herman Witsius, considered the classic covenant theologian, defines covenant as properly signifying a mutual agreement between parties with respect to something. The Puritan John Owen similarly has defined covenant as an absolute agreement between distinct persons about the order and dispensing of things and their power unto their mutual concern and advantage. Perhaps a more modern theologian, Walter Kaiser, says a covenant is an agreement involving two parties in Scripture between God and mankind, between mortals or between nations. It may either be a conditional or unconditional covenant. Now, reducing these definitions to simpler language, we may say that a covenant is the solemn entering of a mutual agreement where some benefit is assured of a fulfillment of certain conditions. Now, for example, we read of Jonathan and David making a covenant in 1 Samuel 18, verse 3. And in this covenant between Jonathan and David, they entered into a solemn agreement that a return for Jonathan's kindness in informing David of his father's plan to help David's escape, David, when he ascended to the throne, would show mercy to Jonathan's descendants. We also see this in Abraham and Abimelech in Genesis 21, where we find Abimelech calling upon Abraham to swear as one in a treaty. It was a solemn agreement not to harm one another based on certain conditions. Now, these human examples of covenants helps us to understand better the covenants which God was pleased to enter with us. But we must go further than this to understand God's covenant with man. The almighty creator of all things doesn't leave the terms of his covenant to the whims and fancies of our imaginations. He doesn't come and discuss the terms and say, I will give you my love if you give me return this and that. He doesn't come down and bargain with man and say, how much of your life are you going to give me and how much of my love am I going to give you? 
No, the Lord in his own wisdom, he sets the boundaries of blessings and responsibility in his covenants. You know, Adam didn't say, Lord, I, I like the freedom. I like the freedom. Please try again. Sorry about that. This is the thing about having technology. But Adam didn't say, Lord, I like, I like the freedom you've given to me to eat from all these different kinds of trees. I'm even willing to do a little gardening here and there. But I won't agree to your proposals so long as you deny me the privilege of eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam didn't bargain with God, you see, because he understood that divine covenants are sovereignly administered. The Lord alone sets the terms of his bonds with men. Now, do you realize the implication of God's covenants with man? God is not obligated to come into covenant with us. He does not have to, but he chooses to because of his love. He chooses to enter into a relationship with us because of his sheer grace. He chooses man and not man him. It is always initiated by God. And God says, I am committing myself to you. I am making my covenant with you. I am making these promises to you. It is because of these promises that certain obligations follow in the children of God. And so we need to go further in our definition of the covenant than simply a solemn agreement. It is a solemn agreement from God of unreserved fidelity and commitment. And that is where we need to start in God's plan and purposes of redemption. You see, covenants are not a contract. It is not simply an agreement. But rather, God comes to men and women, and He almost flings Himself on them. He unreservedly commits Himself to them. And He makes these promises, which we will see soon. And God stakes His very being in order to bless and save them. And give all the wonders of his goodness. And he gives us the great privilege in sharing of his glory. Now we need to appreciate that from the very beginning of the creation of man. We were created as covenant creatures. We were not just created and then given a covenant. We were created as covenant creatures. The history of God's people is the story of a covenant. In the covenant of creation, Adam was bound to obey God perfectly. And as God, as covenant creatures by nature, Adam and Eve had a perfect relationship with God. God promised to reward Adam with life if he obeyed and threatened to punish Adam with death if he disobeyed. But Adam fell into sin, breaking fellowship with God. God then in his grace gives what Herman Bavin calls the mother promise of salvation when he told Adam in Genesis 3.15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. We need to see that it is God himself who establishes the enmity and strife. And ultimately, he declares that the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the seed of the serpent. Now, true, the word covenant is not named in this mother promise. Nevertheless, in principle and essence, there is present in the mother promise a covenant called the covenant of grace. Think of the grace of God in this promise. By Adam's transgression, he has left the fellowship of God and has sought out friendship with Satan 
and entered into an alliance with him. And now God comes in his grace to break up this covenantal relationship between men and Satan. And he puts the enmity there instead of friendship. And he adds to this promise that the seed of the woman, despite many opposition and adversity, would in time crush the head of the serpent. There is no bargain here with man. God himself comes to man. He himself plants the enmity. He initiates the warfare and he promises the victory. God cannot break his covenant. He has committed himself to keeping this promise. His name, his honor, his reputation depends on it. Still, this covenant of grace is in promised form. The fulfillment of it awaits. As the world becomes more corrupt, and as the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, there was reason to believe that Noah was viewed by his parents as the fulfillment of the covenant promise, the one who would end the curse. His father Lamech called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief. It was not to be. But while Noah was not the long savior that the covenant God made with Noah, this covenant that God made with Noah was nevertheless essential to that salvation. God promised that he would not destroy the earth. The preservation of the world under his curse was essential to work out God's plan of salvation. God then made a covenant of destiny with Abraham. He promised to give him a land populated with descendants as numerous as the stars. God said in Genesis 17, 4, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you. He also promised that through Abraham's offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And we come to understand later in Galatians that this seed points to Christ. And as Abraham's offspring increases, we see how God at Sinai made a covenant with Israel as the seed of Abraham. And it was during the time when Israel was oppressed by Egypt that God had forgotten them. The Bible tells us that God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. And so God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them, Exodus 2. So God comes in and he makes a covenant with Israel after delivering them from the bondage of Egypt and gives them the law in order to teach them that as God's people, they must be holy. And then in the Davidic covenant, this design is taken one step further. We further learn that the promised Messiah will not only be, not only, not be from the Abrahamic line in general, but in the Davidic line in particular. And in David too, there is more than the promise. He himself embodies in typological fashion the way in which the covenant promises of God will reach their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And we'll see in our text shortly, all of these promises are culminated and fulfilled by Jesus Christ in the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. Have I lost you guys? Have you seen the history of God's redemption? There is, of course, much more to the covenants God made with man. But the point is that God has so bound himself to humans and he desires to redeem them to have a people for himself. And so we need to pause and consider that this is the kind of God that we have in heaven. 
He is a God who unreservedly commits himself to men who does the kind of thing that you and I do not even do in the best of our relationships. He gives himself away to us in order to be our God and our security. A covenant then is a solemn agreement of unreserved commitment. God has bound himself to humans and humans to God himself. Now with this definition of covenant in mind, we can now resume our discussion of the necessity of the new covenant in our text. The author continues to speak of Christ's priestly ministry as more excellent than the Levitical high priest. And here in verse 6, he gets very specific that Christ's ministry is superior because he mediates a better covenant. And then in verse 7, the author compares the two covenants. He says, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. The author's argument here is similar to that of chapter 7, verse 11. Go to chapter 7, verse 11. Now, if you remember, Pastor Minje preached on this, and, he's, and it says, Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek? and not be designated according to the order of Aaron. Now there the author argued that the Levitical system must have been deemed by God as inadequate, since he announced a replacement with a different kind of priest. Now in that same line of argumentation, the author says that the old covenant must have not been able to accomplish salvation, and so God saw fit to institute a new covenant according to his eternal plan. And so in order to appreciate this new covenant, we need to ask, what is that other covenant? What purpose did that old Mosaic covenant serve? Now, this is our second question. While the author of Hebrews argues the superiority of the new covenant, we should not lose sight of the significance and value of the old covenant. When we keep the, this definition of covenant in mind, a solemn agreement of unreserved commitment, we see that the covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai brings the Israelites into a very special relationship with God. The Sinai covenant or the old covenant enables the Israelites to come closer to God than anyone else. Now the laws that Moses mediates to the people of Israel at Mount Sinai must be viewed in the context of what has come before. The covenantal creator God, remember, reveals himself to Abraham and then to Moses. He begins to speak more specifically about one family who becomes one nation. And he shows this family and nation how they are to live in covenant with him. I want you to turn back to Exodus 19.3. Exodus 19.3. Now we see something of the background to the giving of the law and making of a covenant that God made with Israel at Sinai. We are going to be turning to a lot of Old Testament passages for us to better answer the question, what is the purpose of the Old Covenant? Exodus 19, verse 3, Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. 
and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. The people of Israel had just come through the crucible of slavery and God delivered them and gave them their start as a nation. Now you remember in the Gettysburg Address, Abraham Lincoln set a vision before the divided country that called the people back to their founding principles. This is in a sense what God is doing to Israel. When the people of Israel are delivered from bondage in the Exodus, they are given the law of God to teach them what righteousness looks like and to return to the vision that God set forth in the beginning with Adam. Now, as God's covenant people, Israel's descendants were called to walk faithfully before their covenant Lord, reflecting God's character around them. This is clear from their call to be a holy nation and a royal priesthood in distinction from the surrounding nations. Israel was called to be a light who reflected the character of their covenant Lord to their surrounding peoples. Now, this perspective is very evident in the logic also of Deuteronomy 14, 1 to 2. You don't have to turn there. You could just listen to me. It says, you are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. You see, Israel was to live differently from the surrounding nations. What the people of Israel ate and how they dealt with ritual impurity set them apart from the surrounding cultures. Israel served the living God. The laws then were given to Israel not to save, but to reveal the standard of holiness that was required to be in fellowship with the holy God. Israel had been redeemed as a nation in order to enjoy fellowship with God. And as these redeemed ones faced the question of what kind of life was required to walk in fellowship with God, the law was given to reveal the standard that God required. Now the psalmist in Psalm 24 recognized this when he wrote, Who may ascend to the hills of the Lord? Who may ascend in this holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false, he will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God, his Savior. Well, now, having made this magnificent promise, conditioned upon obeying his voice, Moses calls all the elders of the people, and he lays before their faces all the words which the Lord commanded him. Now, look at In the very next verse, the answer of the people is very important. Notice what they say. They said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now, it's often said that this is a bad response. I would like to say that up to this point, it is a very good response. And I want to show you why I think it's a very good response. I want you to turn over with me to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy 5. And look at verses 28, 27, I'm sorry. 
Now, in this context of the media, media, uh, mediatorship of Moses being discussed, we read in the 27th verse of chapter 5, Go near and hear all that the Lord our God says. Then speak to us all that the Lord our God speaks to you, and we will hear and do it. Uh, echoing of Exodus. The Lord heard the voice of your words when you spoke to me, and the Lord said to me, I have heard the voice of the words of this people which they have spoken to you. And look at that. They have done well, God says, in all that they have spoken. In other words, when Israel responded, all that the Lord said to us will do it. God said that was a very good reply. A very good reply. So far as it went. But then the very next words reveal God's lament. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it may be well with them and with their sons forever. In other words, it was great for them to express their aspirations to obey God. But there is a difference between wanting to obey the Lord and being able to obey the Lord in the sense that all that we have said we will do. That's why God says, oh, that there was such a heart in them. Because, of course, there was no such heart of them. And, of course, this was proven throughout the history of Israel. The covenant was broken over and over again. In fact, the covenant was broken before it could even be ratified. By the time Moses came down from the mountain, the people had cast a golden idol in the shape of a calf. Exodus 32, 19 says, when Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of a mountain. And so God reissued another, the same covenant, Exodus 34, only to see his people break it all over again. The history of the Old Testament is one of idolatry, immorality, discontent. And disobedience. I want you to turn to 2 Kings verse 18. Chapter 18, I'm sorry. 2 Kings chapter 18. Now we see the consequences of Israel breaking covenant with God. 2 Kings 17. I want you to turn to 18. But 17 rehearses why the northern kingdom went into exile. And the author emphasizes that they were punished because they broke their covenant with the Lord. And when we look at these verses in context, it is plain that the covenant was broken because Israel violated its commands. Now, the next chapter explains why Israel went into exile. Look at 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 12. Because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant. Even all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, they would neither listen nor do it. You see, the history of Israel's failure is the history of our failure. If every sin is an act of covenant breaking, then every sinner is a covenant breaker. You see, every time you sin, you are being unfaithful in your marriage to God. This is the way Jeremiah identified the problem of the old covenant. He says in Jeremiah 31, 32, they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. That is why sin is so degrading, so repulsive and offensive. 
We are all covenant breakers by nature. We all deserve the curses of God. So why was such a covenant given? What was the purpose of the old covenant? It was given to Israel as the posterity of Abraham in order that the seed of salvation might be planted. It was given to reveal to them that God is holy and that he requires holiness from his people. This is precisely the purpose of the ordinances of the law. I want you to turn to Galatians 3. Galatians 3, the Apostle Paul helps us in identifying the purpose of the Old Covenant. The Mosaic Law, Galatians 3, look at verse 19. It was given to reveal and also expose the sinfulness of man. Now, Paul wrote, the law was added, verse 19, because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was put into effect through the angels by a mediator. And go to verse 22. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. You see, the, the Mosaic law was given to Israel to intensify sin so that they would understand the horrible guilt of sin. It intensified sin. It revealed that it was a horrible guilt. It tore the veil away, away from sin to see that it was a horrible rebellion against the holy God. It's much like a glass of water. A glass of water that has all kinds of filth and poison with it may be left to stand. And pretty soon the water becomes very clear. But all you need to do to reveal the filth and the poison of that water is to take a spoon and stir it. The law acts accordingly. It intensifies the sin of the human heart and it brings out the horrible character of sin and its guilt. Now returning back to Hebrews chapter, verse, uh, chapter 8, we can more readily understand the argument from the author in verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. Although the old covenant was said to be faulty in verse 7, the actual fault was not in the old covenant, but in the people who did not keep their part to their agreement. The author of Hebrews, in quoting Jeremiah, does not condemn the old covenant. He condemns Israel for breaking the covenant. In other words, the heart of the problem of the old covenant was the problem of our hearts. Now, while the actual fault is with the people's hearts, the author does point to the inadequacy of the old covenant in favor of a new one. And this is really important that you need to understand. The inadequacy of the old covenant is this, that as good as it is for the old covenant to reveal the holiness of God and the standard of holiness, it was unable to ensure that the people could actually live up to it. A.W. Pink writes, it set before Israel an objective standard, but it communicated no power for them to measure up to it. You see, it set up Israel an objective standard. That was the goal of the old covenant, but it communicated no power for them to actually live up 
to that covenant. I want you to turn to one more passage in Galatians 3. Galatians 3. Look at verse 23. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now faith has come. We are no longer under a tutor. Now, Paul has some very interesting language to describe the law and the old covenant. He says that the law, the Mosaic covenant, was a tutor, our guardian, until Christ came. What did he mean by this? The King James translation, which Pastor Eric read, translates the word schoolmaster. Now, in Paul's day, this word referred to a hired person or a slave who was supposed to train the children of the family. The schoolmaster or guardian was supposed to train the children in basic knowledge in writing and arithmetic. We might say that the schoolmaster was something like a nanny. The law, Paul is saying, was just like a schoolmaster, a tutor to lead us to Christ. You see, the law is powerless to give life. The law, however, inadequate as it were to give eternal life, still served a very important function that it was meant to drive us to Christ. What then was the purpose of the old covenant? It showed God's people the need for deliverance. It had a temporary function until the seed should come. And so the author of Hebrews goes on to say in verse 8, we're finding fault with them. He says, but the whole days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Because the old covenant was inadequate, a new and better covenant was needed. And this leads us to our last question, which is why is the new covenant better than the old covenant? Now, I will answer that question more fully when we get to the next sermon on the blessings of the new covenant. But let me just lay out a few reasons why the new covenant is better than the old. And as I go through this, I hope you'll appreciate what God has done for you as a Christian, as a participant of the new covenant. So why is the new covenant better than the old? The new covenant is better in its nature. The promises of the old covenant were all earthly, such as long life in the land of Canaan, plentiful harvest, Victory over their enemies and national prosperity. The possession of the promised land flowing with milk and honey was the best the Mosaic Covenant promised. It is true that there were promises of forgiveness and acceptance through the offering of certain sacrifices, but the forgiveness did not bring peace unto the conscience, nor did it extend to all the sins of greater proportion. But the new covenant, you see, purges all the sense of guilt from the conscience, unintentional and intentional sins. It extends to every sin that man commits so that by virtue of our union with Jesus Christ, we are blessed not just to the earthly, but we are blessed with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In this sense, we see that the old covenant was made with Israel after the flesh, the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The new covenant is made with those who are Christ, who are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Gentiles who have been grafted in to the Abrahamic promise. 
We must go on and say more. The new covenant is better in its duration. The Mosaic covenant held only temporary benefits to those who were under it. But the new covenant imparts to the believer blessings that will endure forever and ever, for it is called an everlasting covenant. But consider how the new covenant is better in its ends, in its purposes. The principal end of the old covenant was to discover sin, to condemn sin, to curb sin from running amok. So, says the apostle, it was added because of the transgressions. The law was never meant to save. Oh, that there was such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments. Explains how radically different the new covenant was. For the end of the new covenant, you see, is to give a new heart, to give a new spirit, to remove the heart of stone and to put within us the Holy Spirit. The end of the new covenant, let us rejoice, beloved, is to receive the miracle of regeneration, to be born again, which is the foundation of justification and sanctification. Then dwell with me how much better the new covenant is in its effects. For in comparison with the old covenant, which the apostle Paul called the ministry of death and the ministry of condemnation, which left the Israelites in bondage to the law, the new covenant, beloved, gives liberty and boldness. It is the spirit of God given to us that makes us free. For where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And we have the truest of liberty because the spirit given to us is none other than the spirit of adoption, giving to us the freedom and boldness of children of God. And of course, the superiority of the new covenant is in its confirmation. For how was the old covenant confirmed? It was by the blood of young bulls. Exodus 24 eight tells us that Moses sprinkled the blood the people with sacrificial blood and declares, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. But the blood of bulls and goats which ratified the old covenant can never take away sin. And it is just here where we observe how much greater is the confirmation of the new covenant. For what does the gospel writers present of Jesus in instituting the Lord's Supper? This cup is the new covenant in my blood. And that the new covenant is sealed by the precious blood of Christ, is taken up by the author of Hebrews in chapter 9, where he will say, how much more, how much greater is the blood of Christ. And then finally, the greatness of the new covenant, it all comes down to this. Look at verse 6. The author says of Christ that he is the mediator of a better covenant. In essence, John Owen writes, the difference between the old and the new lies in the greatness and the certainty of the new covenant. And it is certain because Christ is our surety. The new covenant is fulfilled through Jesus Christ. He is the mediator of a better covenant. The new covenant is greater in every way because Jesus Christ is the one that keeps the covenant on our behalf, that is why the new covenant is deemed as the covenant of grace. That is, from the first word to its very last, there is not one syllable 
as to anything to be done by us. There was nothing left to do then, but only believe. You know, a little kid came to church. This young man came running to church one day, and he came to the front, and he said, Pastor, Pastor, what can I do to be saved? And the pastor said, oh, son, you're too late. You're too late. Oh, no, 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 pastor, but what must I do to be saved? I want to get saved. What can I do to be saved? Oh, son, you're too late. You're just too late. Oh, no, I can't be too late. I can't be too late. What can I do to be saved? Oh, son, you're too late. Jesus already did it for you. Christ died for you, son. He shed his blood for you. He kept the covenant. That's it. The essence of the old covenant was doing. The new covenant brought a change. Where the law says do, the Lord in the new covenant says done. And so remember, dear friends, there is no other covenant whereby any human can be saved. No promise but what is contained in the new covenant. No mediator but we can lean on but the Lord Jesus Christ. Lay hold then of this covenant and you are safe. Reject it and you will perish forever. Let's pray together. Lord God, you are the covenant keeper and we are covenant breakers. We confess the wretchedness of our hearts and of the many times we have turned from your commandments. And if left to ourselves, we would be like the Israelites of old without the joy of forgiveness, without the power from the spirit to keep your word. But thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, that you've brought us under the new covenant and a better covenant enacted on better promises of which we have a better hope and better sacrifices by which our guilt and our sins are cleansed and of better things provided for us and of better country for our inheritance. Help us to lay hold of his covenant and so persevere in our faith. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, our mediator, we pray. Amen.